a video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study again today. We're going to be looking for a few minutes today at some important things, very important things that God's given us in Exodus chapters 18, 19, and 20. We're going to focus there. We'll pull in some verses from other places in God's Word, of course. And I want you to stay with me to the end this time. This is all pretty important stuff. But let me say this first, once again, if you happen to be watching this video or maybe listening to this podcast and you are not already involved in a Sunday morning small group Bible study somewhere, before we get into our study, let me just invite you again to come check out our new Standing Firm Bible Study class at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. We're meeting in room 216, that's in the Family Life Center, at 10.15 a.m. each Sunday morning. And if you like some directions or you like a little more information, go to AboundingJoy.com. You can see it there on the screen. Click on Standing Firm Bible Study Class, and you can get some more information. We'd love for you to visit with us this Sunday. It'd really be a blessing to me. As you know, we're living in very, very challenging, difficult times for Christians. I suspect it's going to get more difficult very quickly. And we all need the kind of encouragement and the kind of prayer support that we can get in a small group Bible study class to, to stand firm in times like we're living in. So if you're not already involved, would you just pray about it at least and maybe come visit us? Why not this Sunday? Why not? All right, let's look at Exodus chapter 18, verse 1. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord, Yahweh, had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, which literally in Hebrew means foreigner, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, which literally is God is my help, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet him. So you may remember that Moses had married Zipporah, Jethro's daughter, when Moses was shepherding Jethro's flocks earlier in the wilderness, again near Mount Sinai at the time where God spoke to Moses from the burning bush. That was at the base of Mount Sinai. It's also called Mount Horeb. When you see the words Mount Horeb, it's the same. Just understand that it's another a name for Mount Sinai. There's still a lot of debate among scholars about exactly where it was located, where Mount Sinai is located. For many centuries, most Bible scholars seem to think it was located in the Sinai Peninsula, what we call the Sinai Peninsula, which got its name from the mountain, not the other way around. Probably right about here on the map. You can see it there on your screen. But nowadays, I think I've mentioned this before, but there's a pretty strong argument that it might have actually been located on the eastern side of the Gulf of Aqaba, maybe right about here on the map. 
there's a mountain inside that red circle you see there on the map called Jebel, sometimes Jabal, Al-Laws, which literally means Mountain of Almonds. <laughs> and some people think that mountain is the real Mount Sinai. And they've got what they believe is evidence to support that. Jethro was from Midian, and we know that the Midianites were mostly on the eastern side of the Gulf of Aqaba, right here, roughly. That's where the Midianites live. Of course, that doesn't mean that Jethro couldn't have come around to the west side of Aqaba as well. The entire area, east and west, on both sides of the Gulf of Aqaba, was largely uninhabited and a wilderness area. We talked about a wilderness last time. Some people will point out that in the New Testament, it says that Mount Sinai was in Arabia. And I say, wait a minute, since Arabia is on the east side of the Gulf, at least it is today, <laughs> that seems to settle it. Must have been on the east side if it's in Arabia. But it really doesn't settle it because in the time of the New Testament, the Roman province, it was called Arabia, which Paul would have been referring to, was actually on both sides of the Gulf. <laughs> Here it is. You can see it. In fact, let me zoom in a little bit and you can see it more clearly. So we just can't draw conclusions from the word Arabia as it was used in New Testament times. Someday, when the Lord comes back probably, we may get to learn exactly where all these things happen. <laughs> I don't know about you, I, I'll use my imagination sometimes, I need to be careful with that, but I enjoy historical documentary movies. I really do, if they're good especially. The only problem is, Sometimes I find myself wondering, can I really trust what these guys are telling me in this documentary? I mean, I just, I don't know these guys. I mean, are they, are they, are they shooting straight with me here? <laughs> Wouldn't it be fun to watch documentary movies that the Lord himself produced for us to watch <laughs> so we can learn what really happened in more detail, just to see more of the details than he gave us in his word? I know he's given us all we need in his word. We don't need the details, but our curiosity would love to see them filled out. And maybe, maybe. That will be a thrilling part of our time with him when he returns and sets up his kingdom. Maybe we'll get to see some of the details of all these events. But for now, <laughs> I think we just have to be content to know that these things clearly happened. They, they're historical. They literally happened somewhere. We're not exactly sure. We're pretty close, but not exactly. In verse 2 and 3, we learn that at some point in their stay in Moses' ministry in Egypt, Maybe during the plagues, Moses had sent Zipporah and their two sons back to live with Jethro, her dad, until God brought the Israelites out of Egypt and back to Mount Horeb, and then he brought them back to Moses. In the rest of this chapter, we learn that Jethro realizes that Yahweh is the true God. No doubt about it. He knows. We find him worshiping Yahweh, the true God, with Moses and Aaron. Look at verse 10. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, Yahweh who's delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord, Yahweh, is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. We also find Jethro to be a man of organizational skill and wisdom and good counsel. He observed Moses spending all day long settling these disputes between the Israelites. And Jethro realized, this is a formula for disaster. Moses, you can't keep up with this. You know, they're demanding your personal mediation on all these problems, and it's too much for you. So he counseled Moses, you need to find some other wise men who can carry this load with you. 
He suggested that Moses organize people into groups of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens with different men responsible for different groups. Let's look at it in verse 21. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, Moses, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it'll be easier for you, and they'll bear the burden with you. Very wise counsel. And so it worked kind of like the appellate court system that we have in our country. If, if, if they could work it out at a lower level, fine and good, problem solved. But if need be, they could appeal to a higher court, so to speak. And the really serious and really tough questions would finally come all the way up to Moses himself after they'd been thoroughly discussed without any resolution at the lower levels. By the way, the last verse in this chapter may be a little bit of a clue to the folks who support the traditional site from Mount Sinai being on the Sinai Peninsula. Look at verse 27. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, that's Jethro, left Moses, and he went away to his own country. He went away to his own country, which was Midian, which meant the country to the east of the Gulf of Aqaba. So maybe he was on the west side and he went back to the east side. But that's not conclusive either because it's possible it could simply mean Jethro was already on the east side with Moses and maybe just needed to travel, for example, back north for many miles where his people might have been. That's not conclusive. Chapter 19. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. You may remember they left Egypt on the day after Passover. Passover was Nisan 14th. They left on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would have been the 15th day of the first month. Which means, by the way, there would have been a full moon. Have you thought about that? The Hebrew calendar was a lunar calendar. And the first day of each month started at the new moon. So this was the beginning of the third month of the Hebrew calendar. It was a new moon. So from the 15th day of the first month, which would have been full moon, to the first day of the third month would have been about 45 days after they left Egypt. So if we add maybe five days to it, that would make sense. It would have been about the time Moses was receiving the law on Mount Sinai. That's why the Jews teach that the day of Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, which was on the 50th day, remember, after that regular weekly Sabbath of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We talked about that in an earlier study on Exodus. It was actually a celebration, they say, of God's giving of the law to Moses. Well, it fits, time-wise anyway. But God's getting ready to do something really spectacular here. He's really going to get people's attention. Verse 2, they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness there Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. So the Lord called Moses up on the mountain and he gives him a message that he's supposed to take to the Israelites. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests 
and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So here in verse 5, God tells Moses, I want you to remind the people that I, their God, I'm making a covenant with them. And if they'll agree to it, God says the Israelites will be his treasured possession among all peoples, and there'll be a kingdom of priests, meaning they will represent God to the other nations. That's what they were supposed to do. And there'll be a holy or separated nation, a nation different from all other nations. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. So the people said, yes, we agree to this covenant. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. In verse 9, God tells Moses he wants the Israelites to hear his voice for themselves. He wants them to hear him with their own ears. He doesn't want to give them any room to say, well, Moses says he's hearing from God, but what if he really isn't? What if he really hasn't? What if he's just making this stuff up? God wants them to know, no, it's God. He wants them to hear and be awed by his voice. In verses 12 through 15, God stresses the holiness of this place and the seriousness of this occasion. The people are supposed to stand back away from the mountain. And if anyone approaches the mountain, he's to be put to death. And the people are consecrated and they're made clean and they wash their clothes. Pick it up in verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. In verses 20 through 25, God called Moses back up on the mountain and again warned him of the seriousness of what's about to happen. Moses had to go back down and warn the people again it would be deadly to approach the mountain. Then Moses was supposed to come back on the mountain with Aaron. That brings us to chapter 20, where God speaks out the Ten Commandments so that the Israelites can hear his voice for themselves speaking his Ten Commandments, his great moral law. So chapter 20 begins in verse 1 with the words, And God spoke all these words, saying. And then in verses 2 through 17, we hear or read now what God spoke audibly for those Israelites to hear, the Ten Commandments. Now I want us to skip on down and look at verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, Moses, you speak to us. <laughs> we'll listen. Do not let God speak to us anymore, lest we die. 
as God intended, this has been a terrifying experience for the Israelites. They are not at all sure they're going to be able to survive it. Well, in verse 20, Moses quietens them down and explains God's purpose in doing this. Verse 20, Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. In the rest of this chapter, God underlines and emphasizes the importance of them not making little gods out of silver or gold. And he also teaches them the proper way to build their altars. And then in chapters 21 all the way through 31, God gives Moses lots more commands. Commands about many, many things. Laws about property rights and self-defense, restitution for stolen goods, moral laws regarding marriage and sexual perversions, laws about treatments of strangers and treatment of widows and orphans, laws about lending money, laws about partiality, justice, bribes, laws about the Sabbaths and laws about the festivals and Lots of instructions for the construction of the tabernacle. Lots of detail given to us there. And by the way, after the conclusion of the book of Exodus, he's not through giving laws. After the tabernacle has been constructed, which is described in the last part of Exodus, the last six chapters, God gave Moses even more very specific laws. They're recorded in the book of Leviticus. Lots and lots of all kinds of laws. But God has terrified these people at Mount Sinai, and we tend to think, well, surely after this incredible, terrifying demonstration of God's power, they'll be scared out of any temptation to sin that they might have. Surely they'll be careful to submit to God now. But we know better. It's only 40 short days, and they'll be thinking, well, Moses must be dead or something. I mean, he's been on the mountain an awful long time, and they're going to talk Aaron into building a golden calf. Remember that? Chapter 32 tells us about the golden calf incident. And then Moses comes down and breaks the tablets of the law. Chapter 34, God rewrites the law on the tablets. Now, now I want us to think for a few minutes about the kind of covenant God was making with these people, because I think there's some confusion about this. So please stay with me here. Some people think that the people were promising to keep their end of the covenant by keeping God's law with sinless perfection. And if they broke it in the slightest way, well, it's over. They would have broken the covenant. They would have no longer been God's people. But that couldn't be true because they broke it in large ways and small ways, and yet they were still part of God's covenant. First, let's make sure we understand these commands that God gave Moses. I think this is important too, and I think there's some confusion here. When we read through these chapters of Exodus and Leviticus very carefully, we begin to realize there really are different kinds of laws here. For example, some of the commands, like the commands regarding animal sacrifices or the commands regarding the Levitical priesthood, some of them were obviously meant only for a period of time that ended when Jesus the Messiah came because these commandments were simply pointers pointing men to the coming Messiah. And when Jesus came, we all know those commands came to an end. We know better than to go out and offer a sacrificial lamb to God because all those sacrificial lambs pointed to the true lamb of God, Jesus, and he's come. 
He's the one to whom all those priests and all those sacrificial animals pointed. So that's one kind of law. There were other commands, like commandments regarding circumcision and the dietary laws and the Sabbath laws that were given primarily to keep Israel separate, distinct from the other nations. God intended Israel to be the people through whom he would give the world his word and give the world his son, the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. God did not intend for those Jewish people to be assimilated into the rest of the world. So God used these commands to keep Israel separated. And so later when they were scattered, it kept them from being absorbed and just disappearing into other people groups. God used these commands to keep them from losing their identity. Sometimes we call these commands holiness code commands, holiness commands. Holiness, of course, means separated or different or set apart, kept them separated from other people. We also find another kind of command in the Old Testament in these lists of commands. These commands were part of a group of civil commands that God gave Moses in order to structure this, this early Israelite society so it could function well as a society. For example, there was a command that told debt collectors they couldn't enter the house of a debtor to collect a debt. That's in Deuteronomy chapter 24. When you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect his pledge. That was too intimidating. <laughs> there were civil laws having to do with regulating divorce. There were laws about inheritance. There were, there were laws about landmarks. Many other laws. There was a civil law that people had to put a safety wall around the flat roof of their home to keep people from falling off. Look at this. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. Those were civil laws. They kind of correspond to our laws against speeding or maybe our zoning laws or housing regulation laws. You know, we got all kinds of laws like that, too. They were binding on ancient Israel, but they're not binding on us today. Many of them wouldn't make any sense in our day. And then, of course, there are the commands that are part of God's great eternal moral law. These are the commands that usually come to our mind when we hear people talking about God's law or we read about God's law or God's commands. Normally, we're thinking about these moral commands. His eternal moral law includes things like thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not covet, you know, laws against adultery, laws against bearing false witness, idolatry, on and on and on, many of those laws too. Now, I'm sharing this with you right now because we're in this section of God's Word where he's talking about his law. But when we fail to recognize there are different kinds of laws, we may find ourselves falling into a trap that some secularists, and unfortunately some people who even call themselves Christians, are setting up for biblical Christians today. I don't want you to fall into those traps. For example, are you aware that there are people who will argue that, well, we Christians pretty much ignore many of the Old Testament commands, like the command not to wear a garment made of two different fabrics, or, you know, there are all kinds of commands like that. Why should we get so worked up about commands against homosexual behavior? I mean, why don't we, why don't we ignore them too? <laughs> if the others are not important, maybe that's not important. Now, the truth is, and I don't want to chase this rabbit too far, we're not 100% sure why God told them not to wear a garment made of two different fabrics. Josephus thought it was to keep them from wearing things that would be too similar to what the priests wore. 
Other scholars say, well, it's just to separate them from pagans. Pagans did those kind of things as acts of worship, and, and the Israelites were supposed to be separate, part of the holiness code. Others say, well, it's kind of a metaphorical command to warn Israel, don't lose your identity by intermarriage with the pagans. All that makes sense. But it does seem to fit in the category of keeping Israel holy, separate from others. And somebody might say, well, maybe it's the same with the commands against homosexual behavior. Maybe it wasn't part of the moral code. Maybe it's just for keeping Israel separated from the pagans. So is there a way to tell? Well, yes, there's a way to tell. God's made it easy. Look at 1 Corinthians 6. In 1 Corinthians 6, we learn that the command against homosexual behavior falls under the same category as commands against fornication and idolatry and adultery and theft and coveting and drunkenness and extortion. These things are all part of God's great moral law. Let's just read that passage, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So homosexual behavior is listed in the same list as these other sins. Clearly these things are examples of God's great eternal moral law. So we must not let secularists try to muddy the water by trying to get us to compare apples with oranges. God's moral law and his civil laws or his sacrificial laws or his holiness code laws for Israel are two very different things. Now, before we stop, I want us to think about one more issue. Was God telling them that they had to obey his law perfectly in order to be saved? Was it a covenant based on their works? Some people believe that. But I think it's a bad mistake. If it was a covenant of works, then their goose was cooked almost immediately. God awes them with his presence. And then he speaks his Ten Commandments to them. And the people agree that they will keep them. But they almost immediately show they will not keep them. Right? I mean, no one ever kept them. The New Testament makes it clear there's none that doeth good. No, not one. When Moses threw those tablets down and broke them, it was a picture of their sin. They had already broken God's law. They would trashed God's law from the very beginning almost. But what did God do? Do you remember? He didn't just destroy them. He very graciously renewed the covenant with them. He very graciously gave Moses a new set of the tablets of the law. Now, as God's part of the covenant, we've already looked at this earlier today, but, but uh, he's promised to make the Israelites his prized possession. Remember that? A kingdom of priests a holy nation set apart for God's glory. But that's not all God promised. Look what he said in Exodus chapter 34. Now Moses is still on Mount Sinai in Exodus 34. And he said this just as he was about to give Moses the second set of the tablets of the law. This was after he had broken that first set. But I want us to look at this. Look at verse 4. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. 
the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, listen to this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Look at those words in verse 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. You see what's going on here? God's about to prove that he forgives sin by giving them a new set of the tablets of the law. Part of God's promise to them is mercy and grace and love and faithfulness and forgiveness. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that sound like the New Testament? <laughs> this is the Old Testament. This is Mount Sinai. So what were they supposed to do? They definitely couldn't keep all of God's commandments. God knew they would fail, and they, if they were being honest, would know quickly they would fail. They are too weak, just like we are. But God wants them to learn to love him. Remember the first two commandments that God spoke to the Israelites in Exodus 20? The first one was they were to have no other gods before him, the true God, Yahweh. The second one was not to make any graven images. And right after that, God gave them a reason. Verse 5, he said, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me, who love me and keep my commandments. He said this way in Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Love him. And Jesus told us in the New Testament, this is the greatest commandment of all. They were to love God. But what about all the warnings they had to keep his commandments? Well, I think God's talking about the obedience that comes as a result of faith and love, just like he does in the New Testament. The New Testament says some of these same kind of things, like in Hebrews, we read this, and being made perfect, he, Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That sounds like work salvation, but we know it isn't. The obedience is the product and the demonstration of love and faith. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. You see that? The obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Faith leads to obedience. Look what James wrote. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. I will show you my faith by my works. Faith produces good works. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God 
and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was called a friend of God. So yes, Abraham had faith, and that's what God used to declare him righteous, his faith. But his faith produced good works. And then maybe the most classic verse that you probably memorized about grace, God's grace, for by grace you've been saved through faith. That's how we get saved, not by obedience, by grace. We've been saved through faith, not by works. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. But he didn't stop there. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The faith, the grace that God gives us produces good works. The problem that those people had was the same problem that most people have today. They did not believe God. They did not really love God. Look at this. In spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God. And this one, when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea saying, go up and take possession of the land that I've given you, then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God and did not believe him. You didn't have faith. You didn't trust him or obey his voice. God tells their problem very succinctly in Psalm 78. They did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. They didn't have the faith. That's the only way to please God. He goes on that same chapter, that same psalm. In spite of all of this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. Look at this verse, Numbers 14. The Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? Very clear. One more question that can come out of the fact that God is forgiving these people. We might say, wait a minute, how can a holy, righteous, just God just overlook and forgive their sin? Because if he overlooks sin, he's not a just God. Well, you know the answer to this probably already. A holy, righteous, just God cannot overlook sin. We know that. He would not be just. That's true. But he can forgive sin because his justice was satisfied. Where? You know where. On the cross, God himself, in the person of God the Son, died for our sins on the cross. And he died for their sins too. So God could forgive them and show mercy toward them because of Jesus. So they weren't saved by works any more than we're saved by works. But when they loved and trusted God, he would forgive their sins because of Jesus. Okay, what's the purpose of all these moral laws then? Well, for one thing, they teach us about the character of God. We learn a lot about God by studying his moral laws. For another thing, to the extent that we do obey them, life certainly will go better for us. That's true for lost people. If they obey God's great moral commands, moral laws, life goes better for them. Sin, which is simply disobeying God's moral law, Sin always leads to horrible outcomes. Sin leads to the curse. Sin leads to destruction. Sin leads to death. Horrific outcomes of sin. And obedience does lead to blessing. But listen, it does not lead to eternal life. 
Because none of us can obey perfectly. You understand that? We all need mercy. We all need grace. We all need the forgiveness that can come only through receiving and trusting and loving Jesus. And in Romans chapter 7, Paul also reminds us the law serves as a mirror. We look at it and we realize, oh my goodness, I've blown it really badly. I need a Savior. When we look at the law, we see our sins. It's like a mirror. And these ancient Israelites could look at God's law and realize they'd blown it badly too, just like us. And they desperately needed forgiveness and grace and mercy too, just like us. And because of Jesus, God could give them that forgiveness and grace and mercy too, just like he can us. They just needed to learn to love and trust him just like we do. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for coming down on Mount Sinai and incredible power, the demonstration of your incredible glory, terrifying the people, giving your great moral laws, and then, Lord, giving all kinds of other laws. And thank you for helping us understand that you did give different kinds of laws. And, Lord, thank you for reminding them as well as us that none of us can keep this awesome law of yours. We know we can learn a lot about you by studying your law. And we know that when we keep your law, you, you send blessings our way. But we also know, and they learn this very quickly, our flesh is very weak. We tend to think badly because we've inherited Adam's thinking ability. <laughs> Lord, we've, we've got fallen natures. We know that. And it, it causes us to get messed up in our thinking. It causes us to think that sin is better than obedience. It causes us to think we can do wrong things because it's appealing to us and things will turn out okay. And thank you for making it very clear that's not true. That if we disobey your word, and we all have, we're headed for destruction. So thank you, Father, that by your grace, you provided for them and for us a solution, a way we could be forgiven, a way we could receive your grace and your mercy. How awesome you are that you, God, the Son, would come and go to that cross to take the wrath that we were due to pay for our sins and in turn to offer us forgiveness. If we will simply turn to you and trust you and love you. What an incredible opportunity you've given us, Lord, and them. And Lord, I pray we will not get confused about these things. Lord, we know that Satan and the secularized world are working very hard to confuse Christians these days. So please help us to stand firm in your word and on your truth and not be confused. We know that the only way we'll not be confused is to keep our focus on you and stand in your word and that you will protect us. So we're looking to you for that protection. Use us for your glory any way you see fit. We want to represent you well. We want to bring you honor and thanksgiving and glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.